0: Most of you have likely uh, heard of and and maybe some of you have probably read the the famous allegorical poem by Dante entitled Inferno, which is part one of his famous three-part series, The Divine Comedy. In Inferno, Dante takes a journey through the different layers of hell on a search to find his love Beatrice, who is waiting for him in heaven. And during his journey, he comes to one of the outer layers of hell where he sees people chasing after a banner in circles. They could never reach it, but they could never stop chasing after it either. And Dante writes in Inferno, he says, "'And I, who straightway looked, beheld a banner.'" which whirling ran around so rapidly that it no pause obtained. And following it came such a long train of souls in pain. I should never have thought that death had undone so many. It's this unquieting scene that Dante depicts here of restless souls in hell, looking to a banner that they are unable to grasp, but they never stop trying to grasp it. In their exhaustion and in their pain, they're, they're like a dog chasing his tail in circles, never able to obtain what they desire to obtain. A banner, in the most basic of senses, is something that people look to. A banner is usually hung up high. It's usually placed on a, a high pole, similar to a flag, or hung from a high tanner, uh, a high tower, sorry. It's, it's held up where everyone is able to see it. Traditionally, and in biblical context, banners were, whoa, banners were military symbols. They were pieces of clothing bearing an army or a tribe or a nation's insignia that was raised up on a pole. A soldier would look to their banner on the battlefield, and it meant many things for them. They would look to it to know whether they should attack, and whether they should continue to advance on the enemy. The banner helped soldiers keep their bearings in the battlefield to know where they were in the midst of the chaos that was happening around them. The banner was also give soldiers courage. As long as that banner was still flying, the battle was not over for them. And lastly, a banner established the soldier's identity. It reminded them who they were and what they were fighting for. Dante wisely understood that just like the soldier on the battlefield, every person has a banner that we look to. All of us have something that we look to for our path, that gives us our bearings, that gives us our courage, and most importantly, gives us our identity. We all have that thing that we look to that tells us who we are. And this is human nature. This is how we were created. We were created to look to a banner in order to know who we are and how we are to live. We were created to receive our identity and our courage and our strength from something outside of ourselves. More plainly, we were created to look to God. We were created to look to our Heavenly Father, to receive from Him. He was to be humanity's banner. But when sin entered the world, it skewed our vision. We no longer look to God. Rebelling against Him and going on a a great search to find the banner over our lives that we want. We can't go against our nature. That's the things that humans sometimes don't understand. We can't go against our nature. We need a banner. That remains no matter what. The need just became distorted from sin. And Dante's Inferno, he captures this sad reality of humanity and what that means. That people will spend their whole lives running in circles, chasing after a banner that they want over their life without ever reaching it and ever finding rest. Because in sin, people have put off the one banner in which rest is found. As a culture, I don't think there's a more obvious and concentrated example that people need a banner to look to than what happens every year in the month of June. Every year in the month of June, our culture raises the banner of pride up high in every public and most private places. It is everywhere in storefronts, on flagpoles, across city blocks, on social media profiles. The banner of pride is lifted up. For people to look at. And it is a symbol of where people find their path and their bearing. And most of all, their identity. And it should grieve us. Because it represents a culture that is turned from the Lord. And it is wreaking havoc on the souls of image bearers of God as they chase after something that can never be and will never find rest in. We all have a banner that we look to. What is yours? Where do you look for your bearings in this world, your courage, and most of all, your identity? And if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to say, Jesus, But is it? Is it really? Does your life reflect that, yes, that is actually true, or I just know that's what it should be? These are the questions that you need to answer as we continue our series through the names of God, and we're going through this story of Israel's battle with the Amalekites when Moses first calls the Lord, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word this morning, I pray for your people in this place. Lord, it grieves me to think that there are those in here who proclaim Jesus, and yet they're looking at something else. They're trying to find their identity from something that's empty that will never give them rest the way that you will. Father, all of us at times in sin, we get off the path. There's times in my life where I realize, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm looking to this instead of Jesus. Lord, I pray today that you would do a mighty work in the hearts of your people. That you would turn hearts back to you. Lord, that as we look at this story, we recognize a very real reality of the world that we live in. A reality that often goes far beyond what can be seen by natural eyes. And God, I pray that hearts would be transformed in here this morning. Do a mighty work through the power of your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned last week that when we read the book of Exodus, we're reading the real history of God's people, Israel, and yet at the same time, we also see in Israel's experience the story of salvation in Jesus and the story of his church. And so... Once again, as we are in Exodus this morning, we go through this story of Israel defeating Amalek. I'm gonna I'm gonna approach it from this perspective. Because Israel's battle against Amalek is a real event in history that is also symbolic and pointing to something else. It has a dual significance, like many things and events and people in the Old Testament that point to something in the future. This is what is known as biblical typology, a person or an event that is a prophetic symbol representing something that is to come. It's the same or similar in in literature when writers use foreshadowing in their novels, except, of course, that's fiction and we're talking about reality here. But it's the same idea. Typology is all over the Old Testament as God weaves a thread from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Just to give you a a couple of examples, Moses is a type of Jesus Christ. He was God's prophet who led and interceded for his people, which reveals an aspect of Jesus' role as the head of his church church. We look at the entire sacrificial system of the Israelites in the Old Testament. It is a type of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. We went through the book of Jonah. We've looked at the fact that Jonah's experience of sacrificing himself for the sailors on the ship, being thrown into the water and spending three days in the belly of the fish before being thrown out was a type of Jesus' work on the cross. The fact that he died and, and spent three days in the belly of the earth and then rose again. Jesus himself actually connects the dots on this for us in Matthew chapter 12, saying Jonah's experience is a prophetic example of what his work would do i could go on and on and on there's so many examples of how god's word does this but needless to say it is something that occurs regularly in the old testament so as we work through this story we're going to reflect on what it's pointing to in the life of followers of jesus and so exodus 17 verse 8 it begins it says then amalek came and fought with israel at rephidim And so this is two chapters after the story that we looked at last week, where God declares himself to be the Lord, our healer, Jehovah Rapha. And so the Israelites are a little bit further along their journey in the wilderness. And it's important for us to know, in order to have a complete grasp of what is actually happening here, we need to know, why did Amalek come and fight against the Israelites at Rephidim? And to answer that question, we need some really pertinent background details that are helpful for us to understand this event as a type of what we experience as Jesus' church. Because we are talk, there, there's two kind of parallel reasons for why the Amalekites attacked the Israelites. One is what I would call a natural reason, while the second is what I would call an ordained reason. A reason that reflects that, that ever-present Underlying yet often ignored spiritual reality of God's creation, that there is a lot more going on than what can be readily seen. This is a lesson that we need to learn as Christians and keep in the forefront of our minds. There is a natural and there is a supernatural, and what happens in the supernatural has significant bearing on what we see in the natural. We're going to see that in this story. So, first, The natural reason. Following the the path that Israel took from the Red Sea, the majority consensus is that the place where they were attacked called Rephidim was near a location that was called Wadi Farain. And Wadi Farain was this plot of land that had very fertile soil. It was the best location in the Sinai Peninsula where they were for growing and for grazing. So naturally, this would explain why the Amalekites, who were a nomadic nation would attack the Israelites. They wanted the best choice of food and land for themselves and their livestock. They didn't want a competing nation taking from the land, so they attempted to drive them out. So that's what's happening on a natural level. But the underlying ordained reason that influenced this attack is that the Amalekites were the descendants of Amalek, who was the son of Eliphaz and the grandson of Esau, he, who, as we know, is the twin brother of Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel. Esau and Jacob's parents were Isaac, the son of Abraham, and Rebekah. And when Rebekah was pregnant with Esau and Jacob, Genesis 25 says the boys struggled together in her womb. And the Lord tells Rebekah in Genesis 25, verse 23, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So from before they were born, God decreed Esau and Jacob would be two nations of people that would be divided And at odds with one another. And two events in their lives as young men emphasized and solidified this division between Esau and Jacob. First, Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for some food. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later and the significance of that. And then second, Jacob, at the behest of his mother, deceived his father Isaac and stole the blessing that Esau was entitled to as the firstborn male. And so that solidified God's words that the older shall serve the younger. And when Jacob stole Esau's blessing, Esau hated Jacob for it and he wanted to kill him. And so Jacob fleed from the presence of Esau. And so in these lives of these two men, we see the roots of the division that would extend as God decreed it to the nations that would come from them. The Amalekites through Esau and the Israelites through Jacob. And so the natural reason for the attack was land. But the underlying reality was that they were two nations who had always been at odds with one another. As God decreed it to be. One nation, Israel, that had the promises and blessings of God. And another nation, the Amalekites, that lived apart from the promises and the blessings of God. And so Amalekites attack Israel. And the book of Deuteronomy, which is Moses' recounting of the years of the wilderness before the Israelites entered the promised land. It reveals that the Amalekites attacked them in a dishonorable manner in cowardly way Deuteronomy 25:17 to 18 Moses writes this Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God The Amalekites attacked Israel when they were weak and tired from their journey They snuck up behind them and they cut off the people of Israel who were struggling to keep up with everyone else. This is how they began their offensive on them. By going after the weak. The ones who were lagging behind. Likely exhausted children, maybe their parents or their mother with them. The elderly, those who had physical ailments. They took them out first. It was a cowardly attack. And the Israelites had to respond and they had to defend themselves. Though they were completely unprepared for this at this point. And so Exodus 17 verse 9 and 10. So Moses says to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While well, Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. This was the first military battle the Israelites had to fight. They were inexperienced against an enemy that was stronger and far more experienced in battle. They even had to pick men to fight. They didn't have a, an army at this point. Joshua with the men that he chose, he went to fight and defend their nation. While Moses went up on the hill with Aaron and her to do his own battle alongside Joshua and the army he went up on the hill above the battle where the people of Israel could see him and he went with the staff of God in his hand now the staff of God was the same staff that Moses first had in his hand when he met God at the burning bush that God said throw it on the ground and it turned into a serpent Then he grabbed the serpent's tail and it turned back into the staff. The staff of God is the staff that Moses carried when he came to Pharaoh to demand freedom for his people. It's the staff that struck the water of the Nile that turned it to blood. It's the staff that struck the sand of the ground that turned it to gnats. It was the staff that was lifted over the water of the Red Sea as it divided so that the people of Israel could walk through it. And it was the staff that just right before this struck the rock so that water would come out for the people. Moses went up on the hill for two reasons with this staff. First, he went up on the hill to encourage the people. The the staff was held up like a banner that the people could look to. And they could remember, this is who we are. This is who our God is. This is the one that is fighting for us, who has fought for us, and will continue to be with us. He held it up to encourage the people. It gave them courage and reminded them that against an enemy that was stronger and fought dishonorably, they had an all-powerful God. And second, Moses held it up as an instrument of war. And now we're getting to it. Moses held it up as an instrument of war. Verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. You know, there are verses in scripture and and this is one of them this morning that, that I just hope that the Holy Spirit takes the implications of this verse for us and it captures our heart because I'm telling you if we could get what this verse means we would be unstoppable as a people As God's people, we would be unstoppable if we got this verse in our hearts. Joshua and the men were in the midst of a battle. Yeah, they were in the midst of a battle. But it was what was happening on the hill that determined the outcome of that battle. It wasn't the battle itself that they were fighting in the natural. It was what was happening with Moses on the hill. What was happening on that hill that impacted the battle on the ground? Well, the text doesn't explicitly tell us. But Moses' posture of standing with his arms in the air is a big clue. Traditionally, this was how the Israelites would pray to their God. This is how the men of Israel would stand up and plead with the Lord. They would stand with their arms to the heavens and pray to their God. Psalm 63, 4 says, So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. Moses was in the posture of prayer. He was making an appeal to the Lord by lifting his hands up with the staff of God to heaven. He was acknowledging, like King David did when he battled Goliath, the battle is yours. It's not ours. The battle is the Lord's. Israel may be inexperienced and unprepared for war in the natural, but the battle belonged to God. He was with them. Who could stand against them? Deuteronomy 20 verse 1. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. While Joshua fought the battle on the ground, Moses was fighting the battle with holy hands lifted to heaven. He knew what happened on that hill determined victory or defeat and he went to war. And I want to know this morning, where are those men? Where are the men like Moses? Are they here? Will we lift our hands to God going to war? Because that's the only way that we're going to win it is if the men in this place would lift up our hands, get on our knees, plead with our Father in heaven, He will do amazing things. I believe that if men would get on our knees, would lift up our hands, would fight, not in the natural. Stop worrying about politics. Stop worrying about all the crap going on in the world. The battle is in the supernatural. Get on your knees and fight. That's what we need. And I believe if men, men would lead that, strongholds would be broken off. Freedom would come in this place. Freedom would come in the world. There would be a spilling out from this place. There would be unstoppable. Because the Spirit of God would do it. So are those men here? No, I'm, I'm, like, I'm asking. Are those men here? Yes, here? Are you here? Will you stand up and be counted? Will you lead your families? Stand up, men. pray with me heavenly father i thank you for all of these men i thank you for every single one that is standing here that is raising their hands to you god this is not about a moment this is about you doing something in the hearts of men father we need them i need them your people need them our wives need us This nation needs us. This church needs us. And so, Father, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would do an incredible work in the hearts of men this morning. Father, those here who are just stuck in strongholds, stuck in bondage, would you break it off in Jesus' name? We come against the enemy. We say, no, no, Jesus is stronger than whatever we're struggling with. Whatever's going on, we pray right now in the name of Jesus that you break it off. That you bring freedom. Father, may this be a moment right here as men are willing to stand and be counted and lift their hands to you. May this be a moment that is just a catalyst for our church, for our community, that we would see your Holy Spirit work in profound ways. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We want to see freedom come. We want to see our families just filled with the Spirit of God for the sake of your glory and the sake of our nation. (laughs) Father, I pray that you would do it. That men would be willing to come under your Lordship to lay their desires down, to lay their wants down, that you may lead them, that you may lead all of us. We're to pray that you would do it. Mm-hmm. We need a move of your spirit. It's the only way it will happen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I genuinely believe. I genuinely believe when men stand up and are counted, like, everyone flourishes. Like our families, our wives, the people around us, we all flourish. And genuinely, this is what we need. We we, we need men that will raise their hands up. Like imperfect men, guys. Imperfect men. But just men that are willing to say, God, use my imperfection for the glory of your name. That's what this is about. And it's not about this moment. I believe that this moment can be a catalyst. But it's about what the Holy Spirit of God can do through it. When we raise our hand and say, okay, I'm willing. I'm willing to be that God to go to battle for you. We've been praying for the men of this church. There's been... A group of us fasting and praying every Wednesday. Every Wednesday we've been praying and lifting the men of this church up. Because I just believe that (laughs) the men will catapult us to where the Lord wants us to go. As we lead and do what we're called to do. If you came up this morning, I think every man did, but if you came up, listen... Every time after service, I ask if you need prayer. And if you came up this morning, man, and like, there's something going on in your life and you need prayer, it's not just something that I say. I'm genuinely here because I believe through prayer the power of God will work in your heart in your life. So if you came up and there is something going on in your life that you need prayer for, come and get prayer. If there's a train of 10, you have to wait. Oh, well. We can pray all together. Let's keep going. Let's finish this last few verses and then we're going to put it all together. Verse 12 to 16. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So it's from this story comes the first time that God is called Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. I asked the question at the beginning, who or what is your banner? What do you look to to determine the way that you should go? Where does your courage come from? And most importantly, where does your identity come from? What is it rooted in? Moses had the right answer to that question. The Lord is my banner. Moses learned from their encounter with the Amalekites that God is Jehovah Nissi, that he is the one that we must look to. He is the one that we must keep our eyes upon. When he held up the staff of God as a banner, he understood he wasn't holding up a a staff as though it was more than a piece of wood. He was holding up a symbolic staff, recognizing that looking to that staff meant he was looking to God and trusting in him. That he is where hope came from. He is where his courage came from. That is where his identity came from. The staff of God that the Israelites looked upon is a type for the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, more the cross or Jesus himself. Isaiah eleven ten says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal or a banner for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. As the Israelites looked upon the staff, we look upon the cross, or more specifically, Jesus himself. He is our banner. Just like lifting up the staff saved the Israelites from the Amalekites, the lifting up of Jesus Christ on the cross saved us from sin. Just like The lifting up of the staff of God defeated their enemies. Jesus defeats our enemy. Jesus is the one that we look to for our path. He is the North Star that we look to for our bearings. He is the Lion of Judah that we look to for our courage. He is the Lord that we look to for our identity. It was Moses' trust in God that saved the Israelites. It's our trust in Jesus that saves us. It was Moses' trust in God that made them conquerors over their enemy. It is our trust in Jesus that makes us more than conquerors over ours. You see, the battle against the Amalekites is a type for the spiritual battle faced by Jesus' church. The two nations... Amalek and Israel represent the only two nations which will remain eternally. What do I mean by that? Amalek descended from the line of Esau. He was born of the flesh, apart from the promises and presence of God. Remember I said Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for food? It's symbolic of the fact that he was ruled by the flesh. He lived by the flesh. To sell your birthright, to sell that promise for food, that is a fleshly desire. The Amalekites were enemies of God and his people. In the verse from Deuteronomy, the reason Moses gives for the Amalekites' cowardly attack was that they did not fear the Lord. Israel, on the other hand, Descended from Jacob, born of the promise, lived in the presence of God as his chosen people. This is representative of the fact that there are ultimately two nations, two kingdoms on earth that will remain eternally. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. One of the hardest truths of the scriptures is that there is no middle ground. There's no middle ground. You're either a child of God, of the family of God, or a child of the devil. That's what the scriptures say. In his explanation of the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, Jesus says, the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. In 1 John 3.10, it explicitly says there are children of God and children of the devil. People belong to one kingdom Or the other kingdom. As sinners, every single one of us were born into the kingdom of the devil. And until we were born again into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. If that did not happen to us, if that does not happen to people, they will be cast into the fiery pit that was made for the devil and his angels. The story of of the war between the Israelites and the Amalekites points to the battle that is raging between these two kingdoms. And here's the point. Just like the Israelites' battle against the Amalekites was not won on the ground, our battle against the kingdom of Satan cannot be won by the flesh. It can only be one in the Spirit. As I said before, the Amalekites attacked the Israelites for land, but there was a more significant, ordained reason behind the battle. The Amalekites were of Satan's kingdom, and they were attacking the Israelites who were of God's kingdom. The parallel is clear. We are in a spiritual battle as Jesus' church. The gates of hell are trying to come against us, and though Satan will not prevail, there will be casualties. Like the Amalekites, Jesus' church will be attacked by people, by groups in the flesh who hate his church. But it is Satan that is behind all of it. And just like Israel's battle was won through prayer, what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present place, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is not against other people. It is against rulers and authorities and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We can fight like Joshua all we want. Fight in politics, fight in schools, fight wherever you want. But unless you start fighting like Moses, we're going to lose. Neglect of prayer means a lost battle for God's people. The banner that we live under means our war is fought with hands raised, knees bowed, and self-sufficiency destroyed. Our battle is not on the field like the Israelites. It is in our government. It is in our schools. It's in our entertainment. It's in our children getting lured into the new sexual morality. It's in the lies that we believe. It's in the addictions. It's in our own idols of comfort and control. It's in the hearts of image bearers of God who are living under a false banner that they think brings rest that does not that are living as the children of the devil and have no idea they are in bondage and in need to be rescued from the kingdom of the enemy and brought into the kingdom of God. If we want to see victory, we need to fight like Moses. Raise our hands. Plead with our Father in heaven. And just like Moses, we can't fight it alone. Moses could not stand up on that hill all day and hold his hands up. He was just a man. Thank the Lord that we have Jesus in heaven interceding for us. His arms never get tired. But as earthly men, earthly women, we need help. We need friends around us. We need brothers and sisters in Christ holding our arms up, coming alongside us, saying, I'm going to agree with that. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to intercede with you. I am in this fight with you. It takes us corporately as a church to see the kingdom of Satan pushed back and the kingdom of God come to fruition. One, two, three of us can't do it. All of us need to be involved in this battle. We all have things to offer. And here's a word of warning. Remember how the Amalekites attacked the Israelites? What did they do? They went after the weak, they went after the ones straggling behind. It's the same thing that our enemy Satan does. You try and do Christianity on your own, you try and not be a part of a body. You try and not get involved outside of a Sunday morning if this is it? Good luck. That's not what we're called to. That is not what we're called to. We are called to be a people through the week. Every day in battle. Some of us just need to be reminded that we're at war. We're so distracted by other things, by entertainment, by work. by We're in a war. And it will not end until Jesus comes back on the clouds. Until that day, I need every single one of you in this room. Because you have giftings that I don't have. The Lord speaks to you in ways that he doesn't speak to me. I need you for encouragement. I need you to, to, to speak to those around you so that they know this good news of Jesus Christ. We need one another. Just be a people that brings death to this kind of individual Christianity. I've talked way too long. I want to <laughs> end with this. On Friday, we're having a worship night. And I know some of you can't make it. I know. I get that. But I want to encourage those who can to come here. Because this is how we do battle. Like We don't come here for a worship night, just to, like, clap our hands and have fun and sing some songs together. When we worship our Lord, we're going to battle. We're fighting for what's going on in our own hearts to be broken off. We're fighting for what's happening in our brothers' and sisters' hearts to be broken off. We're going to come before the Lord. We're going to pray that he would impact our church, impact his people, impact our community. Like When we come together, it's not just an, a fun night that we're hanging out. We're coming to fight. We're coming to war. And so I hope that you join us in that, if you're able to. Genuinely. This is where we fight our battles. That was cliche. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this people. Lord, I thank you for every single one of them in this place. I thank you, Lord, for the hunger that I can feel in the hearts in here. Hunger to see your kingdom come. Hunger to see your will be done. We can so easily get stuck in the desire of our own will, but it's so empty when it comes right down to it. Lord, I pray that you would break off the strongholds that can keep us back, that can keep us down. Those strongholds of comfort, where it's just easier to be in our own homes in front of Netflix and shut out the world. Remind us, Lord, there is a battle going on around us. That there are souls... As we sit there and watch Netflix going to hell. Not that we don't have those times of rest, but your people need a renewed awareness that that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Your people need a renewed awareness that when we get on our knees, when we lift our hands, you, you work in miraculous ways. You are a God that answers prayer. You are a God that wins battles through the intercession of your people. You're a God that wins battles when we lift our holy hands to heaven and plead with you. And so, Father, right now, I plead for every man, woman, and child in this place. Father, I plead that you would do a new work in their heart. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill them afresh this morning, that they would walk out of here in your power, God, that they would see your mighty works as their hands lay to the plow, that they would not turn back, O oh God. And that us as a people, we, we would be reminded that th- this isn't some sort of fancy Sunday morning thing that we do. No, we're here together. And when we gather together as a people, we are here to do battle. Every single one of us that's here is here to do battle. We are a part of your kingdom. You have commissioned us, O Lord, and we will go. And we know that you will go with us. And we know that as we raise our hands and bow our knees, you will bring victory. In Jesus' name.